Welcome to Quit Bleeping Around, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve more in life. Here's your host, Christina Eanes. Hey, Super Achievers. Today, I'm interviewing Nancy Halpern. For more than 20 years, Nancy has helped executives, teams, divisions, and entire organizations focus on what matters most and how to get it done. She does this through her speeches, consulting, workshops, and coaching services. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you have a very interesting background, uh, quite diverse. You've been helping a lot of different companies, a lot of different people with essentially navigating the waters at work. So can you share a little bit about your background with the listeners? I'd be happy to. I think the primary reason why I do the work I do is because I have failed so miserably at it. And what I mean by that is that I never lost a job or struggled in an organization because I wasn't good at what I did. It was more because I wasn't reading the tea leaves or I struggled to manage my boss or even maybe put my pride and ego aside. So I learned that through three completely different careers. My initial career was actually in the arts. I ended up managing a ballet company. And I was completely unqualified for that job. Yet somehow I got it. And after several years in it, I thought, I'm really kind of a fake here. I need to understand why a balance sheet has to balance. So I ended up going to business school. And when I got out, I wanted to do something very different. Went into the retail industry, which I despised. And ended up losing my job in a huge reorganization and acquisition, and fell into what was then the very first pioneer days of executive coaching. And in that work for now hmm, 21 years, I've seen that when careers get derailed or teams don't meet their deadlines, it's so often because of politics. Again, it's not a lack of ability or experience or skill. It's being able to navigate what people don't talk about, but everyone knows. And so that's a little bit of my professional background and how I became so drawn to these ideas and this kind of work. It's the unwritten rules that we all wish that we were a little more well-versed in. Can you share a little bit more about navigating office politics? Sure. I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal about mm, two years ago. And it was for an article about thin ice. When do you know that you're on thin ice at work? How can you recognize that? And I talked about my own experiences. And we do pick up clues about those unwritten rules. For example, who really has influence in an organization? In my case, even though I thought I was in a leadership role with authority over certain decisions, I didn't know that the consultants that were working for us had a personal relationship with the CEO. So they had so much more power than I suspected, or really than I did, even though I was a director in a, at a Fortune 500. So I think you have to pull back and be a wonderful observer, be able to read the chessboard. Who seems to get people's attention? Who seems to be able to, frankly, screw up and not pay the consequences? And get a little curious about that while suspending judgment. 
I think what happens for a lot of us is we dismiss people like that. We say, well, they're good at kissing up or they're good at quote unquote playing politics. And so we tend to underestimate the power they have in an organization. So one of my missions is to sort of declaw the word politics. So people don't always think of it as an ugly, nasty thing, but instead at work, think of it as really a strategic process. So can you tell can you talk more about the mindset of it being a strategic process? Yes. Well, in order to better understand that, my team and I spent about eight months identifying specific behaviors that point to that. We started with something like, oh, Christina, I think it was 120 behaviors, and actually whittled it down to around 28 behaviors that are both positive, meaning you can learn them and you can observe them. And we grouped them into four dimensions. Everything from reading the chessboard to pursuing results to generating goodwill and to creating buy-in. And under each one of those dimensions, as I said, we have specific actions that people would take. For example, sharing information versus hoarding information. My definition of politics and work is when people compete for limited resources. Resources are always limited at work. So how do you make sure that people are competing in service to the business or the organization and to move it forward versus just for themselves? And now I'm out there in the world um, with organizations, corporations, companies, medium to large, having developed a diagnostic where we can actually evaluate how people behave versus how they think everyone else in their company behaves. And we can sort that data by gender or generation or geographic location or level to identify some of the hotspots that are problem areas such as turf wars or silos or cliques or gossip. You know, and that leads to really interesting conversations about how it impacts the business. Some of our listeners are you know, new to the workforce. What advice would you give someone who's fairly new to the professional workforce in how to have this mindset uh, that politics is a strategic process? I think the first thing I would suggest is to, and this might be a little redundant, but I just think it can't be overstated because it's underutilized, is to observe a lot and suspend judgment. I'll give you an example at the sake of embarrassing him of my own son, who when he got his first paid job, he worked very hard and he had great results. But he looked around at his peers and he thought a lot of them were really lazy. So he asked me if he should go point that out to his manager and give her ideas about how to motivate Now, on the one hand, although that came from a good heart and a good place of wanting to be helpful, on the other hand, I don't think his boss, who had 12 years more experience, was really waiting for him to tell her how to do her job. (laughs) So other than internally thinking, oh, my God, how could you be so dumb? Sorry, Malcolm, I love you. But um, I had to think 
in the way I would as a business person, not as a parent, and suggest to him, as I would suggest to any listener who's in this situation, to be additive, not subtractive. And what I mean by that is rather than tell your manager what you've observed they could do more of or better, instead say, you know, I see that you have a lot of work to do in pulling together those packets. Or I noticed you had to stay late on Tuesday. You know, I'm happy to take that on for you. Or I could do that and I don't mind taking that on or is there any, or even asking, how can I help you with that? So you want to be of additive value, not in any way subtract. The other thing I would do as one of the first pieces of, of advice is learn how successful people communicate. There's a trap lots of people fall into early on, which is trying to prove their value or add value. So they get way deep in the weeds. They add too much information. They're always putting their hand up. You know, they're still acting as if they were in school. They're writing a paper with a conclusion at the end. They're throwing their arm up in the air, call on me. But in a work situation, where it's a different different kind of competitive landscape, very little of the behavior goes wrong. So try to be in a sort of post-school, post-grad school mindset. It's a post-doc in life. And see, how do successful people communicate? Are they succinct? Do they front load the conclusion? Do they only ask questions that uh, indicate curiosity rather than a question just to validate their importance? So I think those are some of the first things I would try to do. Curiosity, adding value. I especially love the part about adding value. That sounds like a good way to manage up as well. It is. I think managing up is one of the biggest unwritten parts of the job description, if you're even lucky enough to have a job description. But it's a huge skill that many people don't master. And keep in mind, you're going to have to manage up with a lot of different types of personalities. So the responsibility is on you to be adaptable and so pliable while still remaining who you are. But most of us are made up of multiple components. So, you know, work is not the place to give your personality full rate. It's a place to manage your personality. And I think learning how to do that, especially during your first, let's say, five to 10 years in the workforce, is just essential to professional uh, huge, right? And so how do you manage up while still being in, you know, keeping integrity? Yeah, and I'm glad you used the word integrity. Uh, sometimes people who have very high integrity will become very naive because integrity can sometimes dip into idealism. And then people get frustrated at work. And, you know, until I did this kind of work myself, I never knew why pride was one of the seven deadly sins. You know, pride can have blinders. You can be proud of what you do, but be careful that it doesn't sort of dip into some of these derailing behaviors. But to go back and answer your question, um, you know, one of the things that I will ask the people I work with is name to me your boss's three key objectives for the coming six. And maybe they can answer those, that question. Maybe. 
If they can, I'll then say, now tell me how, what your three key objectives are and how do they help your manager deliver on theirs? And that's where everybody falls down. So do remember that work is about having an impact, whether you're in a nonprofit, a profit or the government. You are, so you are paid to accomplish something. Hmm? And so you have to know how to help your boss be successful. The more you can focus on that, the more successful you will be. And nothing in that is about brown nosing or compromising your integrity. It's about remembering that it's a workplace and that you want to be of value and help and support to other people to be able to be successful yourself. And that includes the manager. I love that because it brings in add value again. And the it's fascinating. I, I wonder how many, what percentage of people actually did know one or two of their boss's objectives. Probably a small, small number, right? Maybe, maybe 20. <laughs> wow. Maybe. I know. It's kind of astonishing. Well, you know, I... I don't know. And I know a lot of your listeners are newer to the workplace, but it astonishes me how how bureaucratically procedural so much of work is, and therefore it's influenced our thinking. And, you know, not everyone's going to work in a startup. And startups have unwritten rules of their own, which is usually chaos and fast return on investment, which makes it even harder to know what to do because there the rules can change every 15 minutes. But you know, work sort of asks us to do your job and it can really limit our perception where the truth is it demands that you do two things exceptionally well. A, put your head down and do your job, right? Accomplish what's <laughs> expected of you. At the same time, look up and observe and analyze and think about everything that's happening around you. I mean, one of the four dimensions of my political IQ model is being able to read the chessboard. And one of those behaviors is constantly gathering and analyzing information. And chess is a great metaphor, I think, for being politically savvy and navigating your organization. Because one piece moves and it does have an impact on other pieces moving as well. Oh, definitely. Then knowing your your boss's objectives and then making sure that you align yours to match them because you're adding value. I can see how this all comes together. You know, I have not really joked with a lot of my clients that if people did just the following three things, I would have to retire. Here is what they are. A, stop complaining. B, do your job. C, listen to your boss. All right. <laughs> That's really kind of all that goes on. Now, if you hate your boss, or if you don't respect your boss, or if you don't like your boss, all of those things end up being really stressful for people, especially if they're newish to the workforce, because you've never had to really deal with that situation. I mean, if you had a professor you hated, they punished you by giving you a D, and then you never saw them again. But it's you know, you got to remember that your boss has power other than a lousy grade. You know, your boss has power over how much money you make next year or whether or not you get promoted or whether or not you get an interesting project to work on. So you sort of have to come to make some peace with yourself about as long as you stay there, you are going to have to learn how to work 
with people you don't particularly like. And that's not just managers, but even colleagues. In some ways, it's even tougher with colleagues. Yeah. Now, with colleagues, um, I know you also talk about influencing without authority. Mm. Yes. Do you have any suggestions there? Yes, I do. First off, just accept small wins. Lots of people think that influencing is about convincing. So they approach it from what is a fairly traditional, argumentative, contentious mindset. But if you begin it from a very different mindset, which is popularized by this great book called Getting to Yes, which I highly recommend also because it's short. So I, I, yeah. Yeah, I really like short books. So I, I have a suggestion from that book and then I have a suggestion all my own. Their suggestion is that you influence without authority by beginning a conversation by what you agree with rather than what you disagree with. So when you start from the points of agreement, you're already creating goodwill and a bond. And then you can kind of roll back to where you sort of need to make some points. My philosophy about this is to try to assume the other person over having you have no authority or influence is absolutely right. Meaning if you were in their role or their position, you would feel just the way they do. And if you begin by speaking from their point of view, there are no gloves that go up. And then you start to look for, when I say a little win, most of us want to win at everything. But that's sort of unrealistic. And we want to get a hundred percent. And we think those are good goals because then you'll settle for like 70. But the truth is you create ill will and, and someone else gets their back up. So instead, try to give some thought to what do you really need from that person in order to take one step forward? And what's the benefit to them? Most of us don't spend much time starting with what's the benefit to them. And I don't mean hard selling them. I mean a realistic benefit to them. If there is no benefit to them, why would they ever say yes? It 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 doesn't make any sense. Now, yeah. maybe there's something you can say. I hesitate to use quid pro quo, but you know, maybe there is something that they would need from you or know what you're willing to give up to get something you need. So I think you have to be, again, strategic about how do you add value for that person and what is it that would make them happy? Because you want to create a relationship when you start these tactics, right? You're not looking for just a transactional exchange. You want to create goodwill so that you can go back again and they know that they have they can trust you. I love that. And I see in all of these a thread of let's take the focus off ourselves and put it on other people. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of selfish altruism, you know, because, yeah. yeah, I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's going to benefit you. I mean, if it if it worked against you, I would not recommend doing it, <laughs> right? Like, just be nice and then be a doormat. No, 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 no. But it's true that if you go into it, I mean, I'm very competitive. I, and I just want to say that this is born out of be out of, of something I learned in business school. So I was sitting in a course called cost accounting, 
which basically mathematically determines how you allocate costs to different uh, departments. And who's a profit center, who's a cost center, right? So back office functions are often cost centers, but what percentage of the cost will one area bear versus another? And I'm listening to the professor talk about this, and I'm thinking, I guess I was 29 at the time, and I was thinking, wow, if I really want to screw someone over, I could so clearly mathematically create a rationale for why I do that. And then I thought, no, 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 I, I, I really better pay attention because there's not going to be a question on the final. But I kind of, I kind of parked that idea for like, you know, 30 years. Um, but it never really went away. Because, as I said, I made so many mistakes politically in organizations, and I was the one who suffered in big price. And I, I just know great, smart, vibrant, brilliant, good-hearted people who just stab themselves in the, their own back by sort of not willing to engage with people they really don't like or don't trust or feel competitive with. And when you when you check out, there's no way you're going to succeed. That's right. Got to lean in, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to lean in and find the soft spots. I mean, sometimes I'll counsel my clients, you know, use their weakness for your gain or play to their strength to make them more amenable or open to you. So one of the words I'm also love that I'm trying to uh, change the meaning of the of is manipulative. I was teaching a workshop on this, politics and presence at a biotech up in Cambridge, and it was all emerging female leaders. And one of them said, well, isn't everything you're talking about really manipulative? And I said, sure, but when men do it, it's called strategic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's true. So yeah. do it. <laughs> So be strategic, people. Be strategic. <laughs> be thoughtful. Manage your emotions. Tell someone, I, I'll, I'll need to think about that. You know, learn how to be responsive versus reactive. Because emotions, if you give into them, they will create situations that you have to fix. You don't want that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, some of the stuff that you have provided to clients. Can you share a little bit more about your services? I'd love to. So you can find out more about it on uh, getpoliticaliq.com. I do workshops on politics, within office politics, of course. I have also spoken at a number of professional organizations as well as at conferences. So I'm happy to come do a keynote. And we also have an organizational diagnostic. That will create a heat map of where organizations have uh, roadblocks and potholes and then do some interventions around that, be that a video learning series or some tailored offsites or coaching. Uh, because I think that political IQ just builds on emotional intelligence. You know, emotional intelligence. Oh, huge. Had, yeah. I mean, emotional yeah. intelligence stops at understanding ourselves and trying to read the emotions and managing the emotions of others. But it doesn't do anything about what happens in the space between us at work. And that's where politics 
comes in. You know, you're always going to have politics. If you throw people together for five days a week, right, 52 weeks a year, year, day in and day out, why wouldn't you have politics? So the goal is not to eliminate it. It's to reduce it so it doesn't distract from the business and competing outside with other organizations. So now you also have several ebooks, I think, on your website, nancyhelpern.com. Right? I do. And they're all there for the taking. This one on managing your boss, managing your colleagues, and managing your team. Because, you know, love it. You know, managing everyone. <laughs> managing everyone, because, and including yourself, of course, because, you know, no one excels in all three dimensions, Christina. It's just impossible. You know, the people who are great at managing up, frankly, are also not always the best developmental managers. And those people who are great developmental managers who love their people often can't be bothered to manage it up. But the truth is you're in an ecosystem. You know, you got to think about all mm -hmm. of them. Great advice that you provided today. Is there any final piece of advice or anything else you'd like to share? Forgive yourself. <laughs> you know, there's have some self, you know, have some self empathy. I mean, I know lots of people who expect to learn all of this stuff in 15 minutes. And like most things, you learn by, you know, you're going to try to learn how to ice skate. You're going to fall on the ice and, you know, kind of be a little bruised. And the same is true of anything. So forgive yourself. Assume you're going to kind of stink at it at first and figure out what you would do differently. And the final, final piece of advice, I think my son is finally agreeing with me. It only took me two decades to convince him. <laughs> you know, have a plan B. Have a plan B. Because always, always, seriously, because there is not only one way to solve a problem. Yeah. I love it. Yay. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nancy. It was my pleasure. And I invite all your readers to reach out to me. I'm always happy to get email and I respond to everything. All right. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for having me. And um, I, wish, I wish you all the best. And thanks again, Christina. If you'd like to learn more about Nancy, visit her website at nancyhalpern.com. That's N-A-N-C-Y-H-A-L-P-E. RN.com. Christina delivers her speeches to diverse global industries on a variety of topics. You can learn more about booking her for your event at ChristinaEans.com.